Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Judah Neiman. I am a summer intern here at Red Mountain for Student Ministries. And today I will be giving my first ever sermon out of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. So if any of you have your Bibles, go ahead and please open up to that passage. Again, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Now before we jump into the passage, I'd like to begin and first lay down some context and background information in order for us to better understand what it is we're going to read about today. The author of this letter is the Apostle Peter. He's a man who was once a fisherman, but was then called by Jesus to follow him and become a fisher of men. Peter was one of the original 12 disciples and a witness of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. We see in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John that in his interaction with the risen Jesus, Peter was commissioned by Jesus to be a leader of the apostles and cultivator of the church that he's establishing. And that's exactly what Peter does, and we can see all of that laid out in the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter is commissioned to carry the message of the gospel beyond the borders of Israel, and this letter was written decades later to carry on that very mission to the wider reaches of the Roman world. In the conclusion of this letter, we learn that Peter is writing from Rome, which he calls Babylon. And we learn that while Peter is the one who commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. The letter was written around 62 to 63 AD during the tyrannical reign of the Roman Emperor Nero, a man who was notoriously known for persecuting the early church. This letter is addressed, as stated in verse 1, to elect exiles. In other words, these people are Christians who have been forced out of their homes and are now dispersed in the five regions of the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is an area currently found in northern Turkey. Um, these territories had been impacted by Greco-Roman culture and had been under Roman control for the previous 100 to 200 years, and this produced a lot of tension for the Christians who lived there because all Greek and Roman citizens are obligated to practice and sacrifice to the polytheistic gods of the culture. And I'd also like to note that Peter is concerned with neither Jews nor Gentiles, but rather all those who in Christ have become the people of God. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians had been persecuted. They were facing harassment and hostility from their Greek and Roman neighbors, and a closer look indicates that the suffering that these churches endured was largely, if not exclusively, verbal slander, reproach, and accusations which sounds an awful lot like some of the trials modern-day Christians experience. The purpose of this letter, Peter wrote to encourage his readers to endure in the midst of their suffering by giving themselves entirely to God. They are to remain faithful in times of distress, knowing that God will redeem them and that they will definitely enjoy the end-time salvation that Christ is coming to bring. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is the example for believers. Just as Jesus suffered and then entered into glory, so too will his followers suffer before being exalted. The main idea is that though Peter's Christian readers may have been scattered by religious persecution, his use of the word exile points us to one of the main ideas of this letter that definitely applies even to our lives today. The idea that Peter no longer calls this time and place home, but rather our hope and citizenship is in heaven. We re represent our true king and country as aliens and strangers in a foreign culture. Some key themes of this passage are that we are to have our thoughts and desires centered on Christ not being intoxicated by our former ways and the ways of the world and culture around us. That as we face and endure persecution, believers should set their hope in the, on their end-time inheritance. 
and that the new life in Christ, our new life in Christ, is based is the basis for a life of love and holiness. Now that we have a decent understanding of the historical context and the reason for Peter writing this letter, let's um, get into what this text has to say for us here and now. So let's pray. God, I just want to confess that I am not adequately able to convey what it is your word has to say, Lord. And I just ask that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive the instruction you have for us in this letter. And I pray that your spirit would be here with us and that you would move within us and convict us of areas in our lives that we are not fully submitting to you so that we can live a fuller life with you. Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, getting into verse 13. (laughs) Hold on a minute. Um, Let's read. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And you were not ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So... Um, there's a lot to unpack in just this handful of verses. And each and every statement Peter makes is just jam-packed with biblical and historical context. And this is just a one-off sermon um, sermon and not a series. So I can't get into every single nitpicky thing here or else it would take me a month. So I'm just going to glide across through the passage and point out some key um, things that stand out to me. So, jumping into verse 13, I'd like to say that this verse is one of my favorites from this entire book, and the language about mindfulness and heart posture towards action is totally essential in the life of pursuing Christ. I'm specifically drawn to the concept of sober-mindedness, because it's been one of my biggest struggles in my walk with Jesus, and it's a big part of what drew me to this passage in the first place. But before we can understand this call to mindfulness and action, we must first touch on what was previously mentioned in verses 1 through 12. And that's because right off the bat, Peter hits us with a therefore. This essentially means that everything being said right now is built on the foundation of what was previously stated, in this case, verses 1 through 12. But before we look back, I want to share something that one of my old youth pastors, Jake Ajiri, taught me that has joyfully stuck with me through the years. Basically, he taught me that when you encounter a therefore in the scriptures, you are to ask yourself the question, what is the therefore, therefore? So everyone ask it with me. What is the therefore, therefore? Why, thank you for asking. Let me tell you. P- 
Peter begins by greeting these churches as exiled, chosen, as exiled and chosen, people of God around the world. However, Peter makes clear throughout this letter that these Christians he is writing to are Gentiles. But he describes them with the phrase, with phrases from the Old Testament that describes how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. The key is the strategy Peter is using. Wait, this is the key strategy that Peter is using because he wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. So they are wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood and mistreated, and they're looking for their true home and promised land. So, moving to verses 4 through 12, Peter then moves into a poetic song of praise to God in verses 3 through 12. And as Tim Mackey beautifully describes it, he praises God for causing people to be born into a living hope through Jesus, Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children who have a hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as king. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire. And it reminds us of our true hope and home. So paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith and prove it to be genuine. Peter also notes that even though these Christians haven't seen Jesus, they love him. And even though they do not now see him, they believe in him. And that sounds an awful lot like us right now. So now that we understand who these believers are, and now that we've identified with them what they're going through, let's put ourselves in their shoes and receive this essential instruction for believers who are walking in exile. If you think about it, modern-day Christians aren't too much different from these Christians who lived 2,000 years ago. Like them, we're still in exile, and we still have this feeling of alienation and longing of something more. Our true home is not on earth, but rather it's in heaven. Many of us today live in safe homes, but still, it, that home is situated in a world with pain and broken relationships and tragedy done by others and even done by ourselves. In fact, we see all throughout Scripture that exile is simply the human condition. We all keep repeating this pattern of human corruption leading to a new Babylon that we can't escape on our own. So if we have been born again to the same living hope and have been invited into the same family of Abraham, joining in the inheritance of God's promised eternity with him, and are now walking in the same exile, although the trials we face today may be different in some ways, then we can totally still receive the following instruction Peter gives to those exiled Christians in verses 3, 13 through 25. So now that we know what the therefore is therefore, let's walk through this passage one more time, and I'll leave you all with some applications and for how we are to live today. Verses 13 through 16 are all related together. Um, they're related to one another, and they talk about the change in regeneration that Christ wants to bring about in our minds. So once again, reading verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in light of our exile and living hope, we rejoice as we face various trials. Peter exhorts us to prepare our minds for action. And the Greek phrase translated preparing your minds for action harkens to or translates to the phrase girding up the loins of your mind. And this harkens to the Israelites who left Egypt. As God began their deliverance from slavery, he commanded them to gird up their loins as they prepared to flee from Pharaoh. 
And this term presents the figure of a man gathering up the folds of his long garment and tucking them into his belt so that he can move freely and quickly. The modern equivalent would be rolling up your sleeves. So like them, we too need to gird up the loins of our mind and leave behind our former way of thinking with minds fully engaged and prepared to enter into a new life, a new way of life. As Christians, we need to have a certain focus with our minds set clearly so that our hope is stayed in Christ's future coming. Peter pairs this preparation of our minds with being sober-minded, two necessary parts working together in order, in order for us to continually have our hope set on Christ and our future salvation. Now, what is this sober-mindedness Peter's talking about? Well, the term used for sober-minded originally meant abstaining from the excessive use of wine, which of course is a relevant command today. But in the New Testament, this term conveys a broader sense of living soberly, a meaning that embraces sound judgment in all areas of your life. We abstain from intoxicating our thoughts and desires with the distractions and pleasures this world has to offer. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about how we are to take every thought captive in order to make our thoughts obedient to Christ. And I think that is exactly what Peter is talking about here. There are many captivating pursuits and forms of entertainment in our culture today that can easily draw our focus from Christ. So as we walk through this exile, we need to continually make sure that nothing gets in the way of our hope. Sober-mindedness is necessary in order for our hope to be set fully on the grace that Christ is going to reveal to us. And this hope is associated with our faith. It is a, the expectant confidence in our future salvation and inheritance. So now that we've prepared our minds, not allowing anything to cloud our focus of, on Christ, let's talk about this grace that we are placing our hope in. This grace is the inheritance mentioned previously that we rejoice in as we face trials and tribulations. This is the main emphasis of verse 13, us putting our hope fully on the final consummation of God's grace. And this longing for the unveiling of Jesus at his second coming permeates the New Testament, and thus it should permeate our thought life. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you are holy, for I am holy. Here we see Christ's coming serves to motivate the believer to a heartfelt, passionate obedience. The, the emphasis is on what they've become, not what they were originally. Peter addresses the audience as obedient children. The word posture, or the word posture of submission to, hmm, sorry. Peter addresses the audience as obedient children, and the word obedient translates in the Greek to submissiveness. This word points us to a posture of submission to God and his commands. So submitting ourselves to God's commands, we must not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. And these passions are the cravings or lustings of our flesh that we are prone to, which is the same futile ways that we will read about in verse 14, or verse 18. The word conformed paints the picture of us fashioning ourselves to the former. In other words, Peter is saying that because the God who calls us is holy or separated from all that is profane, we must be as well continually submitting ourselves to God and the commands of his Son, not turning back around to the willfulness to sin we had before receiving Christ. The passage in verse 16 referencing our call to holiness is cited in Leviticus, from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. The context of this passage relates to the laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness. It's not only a statement about a person's hygiene, but rather it relates to the holiness in worship and personal conduct. 
which is what Peter is getting at. So moving into verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 17 carries on the call for a life that is different from that of non-Christians. Peter reminds us that we invoke God as Father, and as his children, we are to call on him constantly in prayer. But in addition to Father, God is also judge, and those who call on him must also remember that he is impartial in judgment. Peter has in mind this present life and the last day, that we are to walk in respect of reverential fear of God's discipline and fatherly displeasure. Peter continues to point out the proper frame of mind that a Christ follower must have, The logic is, live because you know. The Christian life is lived out of knowledge of the redemption that Christ has accomplished. The Greek word for ransomed goes back to the institution of slavery. It means that to free a slave by paying their ransom. And ransomed also recalls Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Likewise, sinners are redeemed by God from slavery to the futile and empty lifestyle of our ancestors. And ultimately, the lifestyle of slavery to sin and death, um, and contrastly to one of great significance. Furthermore, the image in verse 19 points to the Old Testament sacrifices, um, but especially to Christ as the Passover lamb. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, the Passover lamb was killed, and its blood provided release from slavery and judgment. As a perfect sacrifice like that of a lamb without blemish, Christ, who is without sin, atoned for the sins of the unrighteous. Although Christians are justified by Christ and clothed in his righteousness, for Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those who are saved by grace must also walk in good works as evidence of that grace. The time of your exile calls for godly fear and reverent behavior, and it's because we are sojourners and exiles that we should abstain from the passions of the flesh rooted in this world. He was, oh, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Here we see Christ's preeminence. God planned when he would send Christ, and he chose to reveal him at this specific time in history when these believers lived. Verse 20 tells us that the redemption was in God's plan before the time of creation. And now, this redemption has been revealed in Jesus of Nazareth in the last times. Verse 21 tells us that our faith in God comes from the work of Jesus, because he is the one who reveals the Father. Peter identifies the Father as the God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that believers have faith and hope in God. Our faith is founded upon Jesus' resurrection and his subsequent glorification is the foundation of our hope for a new future. Verse 22. Having purified our souls by our obedience to the truth for its sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 22 is essentially, essentially continues the language of us being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which results in the purification of our souls. The Greek word for purified in verse 22 is not often used in the New Testament, but it denotes a moral purity that comes from um, to Christians through the gospel. This purification is achieved through obedience to the truth, which is the gospel. 
And this gospel carries with it the call to repentance. And it carries the call with it to repent and believe. Peter adds that in light of this purification, we are to act in love. This is one of the actions that we are preparing our minds for. This love is to be form is to be from a pure heart. Out of it, the inclination to love that comes from the Holy Spirit. Peter exhorts Christians, since they have been purified, to love fellow Christians fervently and purely. This is the first of two reasons Peter lists for why we are to love. The word for heart in the Greek denotes the seat of thought and emotion, which ties into mind and ties into the mind language that we see all throughout this passage. And secondly, and the second reason we have to love one another is because we have been born again. This statement stresses the transition Christians make into a new life after conversion. This seed that gives new birth is the life-giving message about Jesus' death and resurrection. And Peter will continue this thought about this seed or word with a quote from Isaiah 40 and verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This quotation is from Isaiah's so-called Book of Comfort which is an inspired message to the exiled and oppressed people. This is a very fitting application for the audience of pilgrim Christians in light of their oppression by the pagan world. This too applies to Christians today. This message to the exiles in Babylon was that while human help is weak, God's promise and restoration will not fail. Likewise, we are to have our hope set on God's promise of Christ's second coming as we endure our exile in Babylon. Peter quotes this to contrast the weakness and perishable nature of human flesh with the power and imperishable nature of the word of the Lord. This quote serves to assert God's character and stress the abiding faithfulness of the Lord's promises. And with Peter's closing statement, and this is the word of God, and this is the word of the good news that was preached to you, Peter applies Isaiah's words, the word of the Lord remains forever. Since Jesus is equivalent to the Lord of the Old Testament, his word also endures. Jesus' word is the good news, or gospel, the reliable, message that about, the reliable message about Jesus that was taught to Peter's audience. And it gives life and transforms um, life so that Christians are able to love. This word is the good news that I am now preaching to you. So in conclusion, as we face and endure trials while we walk out this life in exile, we should have our hopes set, rejoicing in our end-time inheritance or eternal freedom, from sin and fellowship with Christ. And this is only possible if we have our thoughts and desires centered on Christ, being sober-minded, not being intoxicated by our former cravings or lustings. And lastly, our new hope in Christ is the basis for a life of love and holiness. We are to act in love to those around us, and because we have been purified by Christ, who is holy, we also are called to be holy. So in closing, and in light of all that the Lord has taught us today, I want to ask the question, what distractions or passions are you conforming yourselves to? What is getting in the way of your sober-mindedness? And how is Christ leading you to lay those things down in order to enter into the fullness of life that he has for you? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for your word and for the instruction you caused Peter to give to these Christians in exile. Lord, I thank you that you've given us the ability to see and understand that we are just like them. Lord, and I thank you that you've welcomed us into your family and that although we may be distant from the inheritance you have 
bought with your life, Lord. We can cling to our hope and your future coming. So, Father, I pray that that would encourage us as we endure trials today. And I pray that you would help us to be sober-minded, not being swept up by our old desires and passions or the culture around us, Lord. But I pray that we would be comforted in our hope of your future coming, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.